Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang here. Look, there are so many food magazines and recipe websites out there. I'm going to try to convince you that America's Test Kitchen is different. We spent nearly $11,000 to develop every recipe, and that's an actual figure. Like our Texas smoked beef brisket, for example. That took us two years and 500 pounds of beef just to nail down. So if you want to give our site a test spin, I'm happy to give you 14 days to poke around and try our ATK recipes. Go to atkpodcast.com and I'll set you up. All right, here we go. On to this week's show. Man, I love that song. It's called Right Between Your Eyes by the bluegrass band Hot Buttered Rum. What a great name. And if you're a fan of our public television show, Cook's Country, you'll recognize that as our theme song for many years. So much of what we do at America's Test Kitchen is about this notion of home, home cooks, home cooking, gathering around the home dinner table. Home is familiar and comforting. In baseball, if you successfully slide home, you're deemed safe. So we tackle this idea of home on the show quite a bit. But this week's show is a little different. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, what's the food of your home country when your home country doesn't exist? I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening. Stick around. Reporter Sarah Bake brings us today's story. I grew up between South Korea and Vancouver, Canada. Both my parents are from Seoul, but my dad was a graduate student in Montreal when I was born. He and his parents had emigrated to Canada a few years prior, and his college girlfriend, my mom, joined him in Canada when they got married. When I was three, we moved back to Korea but to a city that neither of my parents had been to. It was for a job that my dad got. Over a decade later, when I was a teenager, we moved back the other way to Canada, this time to Vancouver. Change was something that felt natural to me growing up, even something I sought out. But in retrospect, these changes were made infinitely easier by the fact that the familiar was always just around the corner. There's a pretty big Korean community in Vancouver, and with that, a lot of Korean restaurants. So I rarely actually crave the food, because it's everywhere. When something's so readily available, you just don't know to miss it. But when I moved to New York a couple of years ago, I found myself seeking out Korean food, which wasn't particularly difficult, of course, I was in New York City. But having never had to or been compelled to look hard for Korean food before, I found myself looking for the comforts of the familiar flavors that I grew up around. I guess I was missing home. One day, I came across this restaurant in Brooklyn called Eddie Fancy Food. Its Instagram page marketed the food as Bensonhurst's best Korean cuisine. But as I scrolled through their feed, I didn't recognize any of these dishes. One of them was called Murkovja, or a Korean carrot salad. 
I like to think that I know my Korean food inside and out. And you know what's not a signature Korean dish? Carrot salad. Vinegary, spicy, crunchy carrot salad. Sure, carrots go in different things. In bibimbap, in kimbap, in galbijim. My mom would put more carrots to any dish than the recipe calls for because, you know, you gotta get your vitamin A. But I can't think of a single Korean dish where the main ingredient is carrots. But I was dead wrong. There's a whole culinary world that I never knew existed. Korea saram cuisine. Korea refers to Korean and saram meaning people. But the saram here refers to ethnic Koreans from post-Soviet nations. At some point in perhaps a history class in Korea, I had learned that there were pockets of Korean communities in Central Asia. But I didn't know much about what brought them there in the first place. Why did they leave Korea? What language and culinary traditions did they leave behind and forge? And what do they crave when they want a taste of what must be an amorphous sense of home? Turns out, Morkovcha is really popular in Central Asia and across the former Soviet Union. I just had to try this Morkovcha. And what I found was simultaneously something I was trying for the first time and something that was oddly familiar. It was such a medley of flavors. Tangy, spicy, garlicky, and spice-forward. And now that I tried it, I had to find out how these carrots came to be. I also wanted to learn more about the Koryasaram and this entire world of Korean cuisine I did not know. I'm here um, in Midtown East, heading to Ilya's apartment pretty soon. I was on my way to meet Yulia Kim, a member of the Kurdistan diaspora. Her family comes from Uzbekistan by way of the Russian Far East, by way of Korea. It was just my luck that Yulia lives just a few miles away from me in New York. When I arrived, I was greeted by Yulia and her boyfriend Nick. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> of course, hello. Thanks for having me over. Of course. Oh my god. Hi. And their yes, adorable so cat, Nidney. She's so friendly. Yeah, she's... Oh she loves... <laughs> you never know when As we settled in, I began telling Yulia and Nick about my quest to learn more about the Koryasaram and Koryasaram cuisine. I was initially kind of bummed because when I asked Yulia whether she's ever been to Eddie Fancy Food, you know, Bensonhurst's best Korean cuisine, she said she hadn't. But she has heard of Morkovcha. Not only that, when Yulia was growing up, her parents used to own a deli in Queens where they made and sold Koryasaram food. We sold Russian products, but my parents started selling more of our food. So maybe you've come across the carrot salad. Yeah, Morkovcha. (laughs) And we started selling that and it was so popular. I have been very blessed that my mom is an amazing cook. I always feel really lucky that we have this intersection of Korean or like remnants of Korean, you know, in Uzbekistan and Uzbek and Russian food all mixed. As we chatted about other dishes Yulia's mom made for her growing up, 
I'd learned that the same historical forces that created this cuisine also shaped Yulia's family history. The story begins with Yulia's grandparents' migration journey. Yulia's parents were born in what was then the Uzbek SSR, but her grandparents, they were from Korea. While they're not 100% sure, it's likely that Yulia's grandparents were originally from one of the northern provinces of what's now North Korea. They were very poor, and I think life was just difficult, and so they decided to make the journey to the city of Vladivostok. But that also required going through China. Yulia knows the most about her paternal grandfather Elia's story because he lived with Yulia and her family in Uzbekistan. Elia was born around 1928, and he was a young child when he made this journey with his parents and siblings. He was like a kid when they walked from Korea through China to northern Russia. He was young, but he was old enough to carry another sibling on his back. So that would have been Ilya, his siblings, and Ilya's parents, meaning Yulia's great-grandparents, embarking on this journey. The northeastern tip of the Korean peninsula shares its border with both China and Russia along a long, narrow, and snake-like river called the Tumen. And in the late 19th and the early 20th century, many Korean families made the long journey across the river and through the mountains with hopes for a better life. Once in what is now the Russian Far East, many of them worked as rice farmers and formed a community around the port city of Vladivostok. While passing through China, however, Ilya's younger sister got sick and the family had to leave her behind with an older couple in China who agreed to take care of her. And their thought was that they would, after they make the safe journey to Vladivostok, that they would come back and get her. But they never got a chance. Not long after the family made it into Russia, things were about to change in the region. In 1937, Russia's neighbors China and Japan, they went to war with each other. Stalin suspected Japan's next move would be to try and take away Soviet territory, and tensions between Russia and Japan ran high. Japan had annexed Korea in 1910, so the Korean population was under Japanese occupation. The Koreans who had found their way to the former Soviet countries were now targeted. The Soviet government suspected that their own Korean population might be potential spies for Japan. So in August 1937, Joseph Stalin signed an order to have all Koreans removed from the border region. So Koreans who were already in Vladivostok were left with two options. Get on the train that Stalin had arranged for them to take without knowing where it would take them. Or they could just kind of hide out in the woods and potentially be thought of as Japanese sympathizers or spies. Yulia's grandparents opted to take the train. So they basically started moving them away, like I think in a matter of week. This is Victoria Kim. She's a researcher and multimedia journalist who specializes in the Korean diaspora, including in the post-Soviet nations. 
Victoria's own grandfather was also among the Koreans who were ordered to get on the train back in 1937. Nowadays, she lives in Beijing, so I talked to her via Zoom. Train journey took several months, two to three months, and across uh, Siberia. Uh, so it was all the way from the far east across Siberia to Central Asia. They had been given enough time to prepare because they basically told them and then they put them on the trains. So they didn't bring much food or water with them. There were shortages of all basic needs, not enough clothing to weather the cold either. Diseases festered. Many people died on this journey, including large numbers of young children. Yulia picks it back up. What I was told growing up is, you know, people's bodies were thrown out the moving carts and, you know, mothers whose children died, they would literally just like, you know, still nurse them or hold their dead bodies and then would just die with them, you know, like try to give them a proper burial. Historians estimate that among the roughly 170,000 ethnic Koreans who were forcibly resettled, as many as a quarter of them died. Victoria tells me, though, that this number is somewhat contested. So basically, there is a lot of statistics, but that statistics differs because in the Soviet archives, somehow they always been trying to paint like a rosier picture of the deportation. And that has always been the tendency... Eventually, the train arrived in Central Asia. Most deported Koreans ended up in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And so life began anew in Central Asia for folks of Yulia's grandparents' generation. It was a lifetime away from their native Korea. Having been abruptly displaced from their communities and finding themselves on foreign terrain, they experienced rampant poverty. Yulia's grandfather, who settled in Uzbekistan, was no exception. My dad told us a story, so heartbreaking, but he was saying how my grandpa would, like, steal bread. And as soon as they would steal and start running, they would start eating because they wouldn't know when they would be taken away. Even if you get in trouble, at least you've eaten, you know? But our guy Ilya was an enterprising man. He went on to become a bus driver. And around him, other Koreans rebuilt their lives and recreated a community there, too. Initially, because they were relocated to Uzbekistan as potential spies, they were put in closely watched areas. In time, many of these communities turned into collective farms. And here began also Kodo Saram cuisine. Once the Koreans put down their roots in Central Asia, they slowly gained the trust of the local population. Researcher Victoria Kim again. They were just regular people, right? Farmers. And they worked very hard. So that stamp of suspicion, like enemies of people that they were brought with, it's kind of slowly also, in a way, disappeared. As members of the Korean community adapted to this new environment, their food also took from the spices and ingredients of this new land. Soon, Korean ladies were selling carrot salad and other foods at bazaars across town in Central Asia. They brought a little heat and brightness to dinner tables across the Soviet Union. Eventually, Ilya settled in a city called Fergana. He got married and had children. One of his children was Yulia's dad, Victor. 
Yulia's mom Galina is from another city in Uzbekistan called Karshe, but shares a similar family story. And when she and Victor got married in 1987, she moved to Fergana to join him. Yulia and her two sisters were all born and began their lives in Fergana. Because both Galina and Victor were born into Soviet times, they learned the Russian language and Soviet history at school. They grew up celebrating Russian holidays and eating Russian food. At the same time, at home they made, from scratch, things like fermented soybean paste and hot pepper paste, which are staple ingredients in Korean cooking. And they brought these foods to America. Fast forward to the present day. Galina and Victor now live in the suburbs of Colorado. In late March, Yulia invited me to visit her parents with her. She was headed over to their house for a family gathering, and they were kind enough to let me tag along. I'd learn about what it was like for Yulia's parents to be displaced, and what led them to life in the United States. In the kitchen, we're making kuksi for dinner, which I'm told is a noodle soup with lots of toppings. Yulia's mom, Galina, has done a lot of cooking already in the morning, and we just have to make some noodles and add some final ingredients for garnish. There's easily four different salads that go on the kuksi. Uh, here we have agurtica, and it is thinly sliced cucumber with fresh garlic and diced tomatoes. Heaps of side dishes in big stainless steel bowls. It's a familiar sight for me. These salads make me think of the dishes my late grandmother would make on holidays when my family got together, if with a slight pleasant twist in flavor. To me, they kind of look like banchans or the Korean side dishes, which are the ultimate components of a Korean home-cooked meal. But the names of these dishes, like ogorjicha, are brand new to me. There's another dish with sliced cabbage and pieces of beef. There's even kimchi on the table. And to my delight, these are the carrots. Oh yes, this is markovcha. Okay, tell me. <laughs> Actually, mom, do you want to talk about markovcha? Yeah, we're doing like mandolin. <laughs> Sorry about my English. You're good. So then put it salt. And then um, when it comes um, juice. So you mandolin the carrots, salt them, and when the water comes out of the carrots, you add vinegar. Yeah, very strong, yeah. Then little sugar, then sesame oil. Into a pan go diced onions with some oil. When the onion's nicely cooked, add cayenne pepper, garlic, and black pepper. When the oil gets hot, add even more garlic. Then after that, uh, mix it and put fresh cilantro. As the story goes, when the Koreans arrived in Central Asia, the mothers and grandmothers set out to make kimchi, but they couldn't find cabbage in the dead of winter. With little money and no crops of their own yet, they weren't exactly in a position to be choosy. So they used what was available. Carrots. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, like... Leave it? Do you pickle it? Or do you eat no. it right away? No, right away, yeah. Right away? Okay. Mm-hmm. yeah. So 
this is a big difference between morkovcha and kimchi. A key part of what makes kimchi is fermentation that creates its unique tanginess. This is embarrassing, but I don't like kimchi. I'm an absolute disgrace to my Korean heritage. Whereas I think I could have morkovcha every day. The sliced carrots are crunchy. There's still a tanginess to it, but it's sweet sour, not fermented sour. There's a little bit of heat that comes through from the cayenne pepper, but it's not the kind of spiciness that will burn your tongue. It's really refreshing. It occurs to me that many of the Kurosaram diaspora had to preserve their food through memory and adaptation. From Korea to the Russian Far East, from Vladivostok to Central Asia. And for Yulia's family, from Uzbekistan to the U.S. too. Food was important to them because it's something that they could bring with them when they couldn't bring their whole lives, their community with them. The kooksi is finally ready and Yulia is showing me how to plate the dish. We put some noodles in the bowl first, then the broth goes in and the veggies go on top. Basically, just put the salads uh, directly on top of each bowl. Okay. So we're going to plate it to kind of show how it should look. And then we have additional plates of these salads um, at the table. For example, I love the cucumber salad. So I'll just like add a lot more of it afterwards. It's a full bowl and the toppings make it look wonderfully colorful. Thinly sliced egg garnish, the cucumber slices, and the cabbage and meat pieces over a soy-based broth and noodles. It's served in a blue and gold cotton pattern bowl, which is a traditional Uzbek design. There's a commotion about how much vinegar I should add to the dish. It is not regular vinegar, it is strong. Okay. That's Yulia's dad, Victor. The vinegar they use here is a Russian brand and is 70% acidic acid. For context, most vinegar you'll find at the grocery store will be a lot more diluted, between 4 and 8%. Everyone keeps telling me to put only the slightest drop and definitely not let it touch my skin. You can really yeah, burn skin. Oh, wow. <laughs> I remember when I was little, like in kindergarten, mm-hmm. they would always scare kids, you know. Don't say, touch it. Oh, one day this boy, he put a finger in the bottle. And next thing he, you know, he's, his whole finger is gone. <laughs> My finger remains intact. And I feel that the vinegar adds a brightness to the broth. I go for a little more. It's almost April, but it's still a chilly Colorado night, and there's nothing more comforting than a hot, beefy bowl of noodle soup. I learned that kooksi can be served hot or cold, and is actually most popular in the summertime. Usually, kooksi would be eaten in like warmer days, you know, warmer times of the year, because it's supposed to be refreshing. I remember when I was uh, little, yeah, in my family, uh, I think it uh, <clears throat> was my grandma celebration to Hwangab. Hwangab in Korean is your 60th birthday. A lot of 
relatives came to our home, and they, I, yeah, I remember that Kuxi made it in, uh, yeah, in that time. It's wow. a lot of different food, but I remember Kuxi. In I ate um, the, the, the cold and with the uh, ice on top. <laughs> It's interesting being here at the dinner table. I didn't grow up eating kuksi or markovcha or manti, the lamb dumplings Galina brought out after my second serving of the noodles. The conversation flows in Russian and English, and even with an occasional Korean word here and there. But as much as this is new and different to me, it also feels familiar. I feel at home. The flavors of garlic and soy and pepper flakes, chopsticks making clicking sounds over the side dishes. It brings me back to my aunt's dining table in Vancouver. When I was a teenager, my aunt, uncle, my parents would sit around after dinner, unbelievably full and barely able to move. It also brings me back to my late grandma's kitchen in Seoul. Though... I don't believe cilantro would ever have entered her kitchen. Or cumin, or paprika for that matter. As the night progresses, I continue learning about Yulia's family stories. But to my surprise, they're also interested to learn about mine. My own grandfather, who was born in Hwanghae-do in what is now North Korea, would have been maybe 10 years younger than Yulia's grandfather, Ilya. We wonder if their childhoods might have looked similar before Ilya and his family embarked on their journey to Russia, before they found themselves on that train that took them even farther away, before the Korean War prompted my grandfather to leave his town as a child, never to be able to return once the country split in half. Our family journeys have been vastly different up to this point where Yulia and I were around the same age, both ended up in New York. But we couldn't help but notice that some of the same historical forces have shaped, defined, and moved each generation of our respective families. Later in the night, I was intrigued when I learned that cilantro was a key ingredient in Kodusaram cooking. As you might remember, the last step in making morkovcha is garnishing the finished dish with fresh cilantro. I assume that this must have been another example of the community adapting to local tastes and ingredients. But I recently learned that while rarely used in South Korean cooking, cilantro grows and is used in cooking in the northern provinces. The more you know. After the break, Yulia's family and Koryo Saram cuisine come to America. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang. I've got one question. Do you believe in magic? Well, I do. And it's the magic of mangoes. From that fresh spark in executive chef Erica Garicoa's mango ceviche in Ecuador. Hey, buen provecho. Están servidos. To the oomph they bring, mix into the pulques and luchador matches in Mexico. Porque en México, con el pulque, nos ponemos mágicos. 
And to that refreshing brightness in America's Test Kitchen's pickled mango recipe, mangoes don't just influence magic, they create it. From their place of origin to destinations all across the globe, mangoes transform dishes into instant classics. Learn more about the magic of mangoes and their origin stories at mango.org. Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up. And now, back to our story. The following morning, I'm back in Galina's kitchen. Because Galina grew up in Uzbekistan and largely separate from her Korean heritage other than her immediate Kuryasadam family and community, she had assumed that the Kuryasadam food she knew was basically Korean food you might also find in Korea today. For example, pigoje is a steamed bun stuffed with meat and cooked cabbage, or sometimes with kimchi. It was only after the family immigrated to the U.S. that she realized that most Koreans have never heard of this dish. Oh, wow. So this becomes the pigoje. Somehow it becomes for pigoje and divide it to small balls and then stay on the rest, maybe in 15 minutes, and then we'll grow a little okay. and I'll after that I will put inside some stuff okay. cabbage with meat standing around the kitchen island and shaping pigojis with Galina I'm taken back to the Korean holidays of my own childhood stuffing mandus with my mom I would always overstuff the dumplings and too many of my mandus would inevitably burst while they cooked in boiling water but that was all part of the fun. I suspect any pigoje I touch at this point in the process would suffer the same fate. Making pigojes is certainly a labor of love. We first prep the dough, cook the stuffing separately, and wait for the dough to rise. And then we steam them for about 40 minutes. All of these steps are a bit more complicated out here in Colorado. Because of the high altitude, it's difficult to get the texture just right. And yet, watching the dough rise, letting the flavors fill the air, it's a joy. By the time the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991, Victor and Galina were young parents. Victor had been the head of a construction company at the time. When Soviet Union broke up, the next couple of weeks, come to my office group people and say, move. Victor was told that he was no longer able to work at his office. Victor had lost his job. Now that Uzbekistan was newly independent, there was a growing appetite to have ethnic Uzbeks in leadership roles across industries. As a Korean man, it wouldn't have looked good for the employees who were Uzbek to not have an Uzbek leader. 
Yulia hadn't been born yet, but she knows that this was a difficult time for the family. And I remember my dad saying that he felt really betrayed and disheartened because it was his friends, basically. You know, but all of a sudden things have changed. Yulia's parents had to find other work, and they started wondering about their place and their family's future in Uzbekistan. In 2002, when Yulia was nine years old, Yulia, her parents, and her two siblings got on a plane. Final destination, JFK International. They were moving to America. Their life in the U.S. was immediately off to a hell of a rocky start. The family had been victims of a visa scam. We're going through customs and they're looking at our paperwork and they're like, this is all fake. None of this is real. And so then we were in, there's a little courtroom in JFK and they took us there. Facing deportation, the family made a plea for political asylum. Uzbekistan was under an authoritarian regime, and there were fears that if they returned to Uzbekistan, they'd be seen as being disloyal to the country. The fact that they attempted to immigrate to the U.S. meant that the family might face persecution upon being sent back. The next day, the Kims got word that they were being sent to a detention facility in Pennsylvania. And we're like, what's Pennsylvania? They were escorted through JFK and into a van. Yulia's mom and dad were put in handcuffs and all. The family spent the next seven months in a detention center. They had no idea what was going to happen next. It was a stressful time, and that showed up differently for each person. The shelter had a cafeteria which served pretty classic American cafeteria food. Meatballs, mac and cheese, sausages, that kind of thing. We always talk about what my dad used to do uh, for breakfast there. And my dad used to take frosted flakes. He used to put um, like a packet of jelly or jam, for example, no, I, two I pieces. Think always uh, packet of cream cheese. Yeah. Cream cheese and. Uh, and sometimes butter. Maybe, yeah. And then just jam, 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 but jam, jam. Most jam. I eat on the cream cheese and this, how is it? Frosted flakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cereal, yeah. Cereal, yeah, cereal. Yeah, and all, all this together. To, all together in one bowl. You just would mix it. Seven months later, Yulia's family finally received asylum status and got out of the detention facility. The family settled in Bayside, Queens, and stayed in a family friend's basement until they found a one-bedroom apartment in Flushing for the family of five. The parents looked for jobs, and Galina started working at a deli as a cook. But after some time, there came an opportunity for the family to buy the business. And they did. And that's when Galina added Murkovcha to the deli's offerings. Most of the customers were Russian, who were delighted to find this in Flushing, New York. For Yulia, growing up in Flushing had its highs and lows. So when we moved to Flushing, Flushing is, you know, predominantly Asian. And I grew up surrounded by a lot of Koreans. My best friends are Korean. And growing up, I felt really out of place. While the adults in the family had their reasons to leave Uzbekistan, Yulia was reluctant. She associated Uzbekistan with a happy childhood. 
She was in fifth grade when she first started school in New York. Initially, it was cool to be a little different, to be from Uzbekistan and to be a Russian speaker. But as she entered her teen years and got integrated more into the Korean-speaking Queens community, this sense of feeling like an outsider and a bit untethered grew. I started feeling like, oh, like, that's cool that you're different, but you don't get this. Like, oh, you don't understand this. And it's like, oh, there's like, oh, but you're not really Korean, you know. And for our family, the idea of home or who our, quote, people are um, is very confusing. Like, the Olympics is confusing, (laughs) you know, because sometimes growing up, it's like, oh, our people are Korean people, you know. But then um, we don't always feel Korean also. And I think that became even more apparent once we moved to the States because we were so different from other Koreans who were here. Despite her mixed feelings about growing up in New York, Yulia knew that going back to Uzbekistan wasn't really on the table. Because of our political asylum status, we also were just so afraid of ever going back. Instead, part of this longing for home for Yulia came in the form of food cravings. I like really, really dreamt of having shishlik, you know? Shishlik, or shish kebab, I learned, is skewer-grilled meat. It's widely popular in Uzbekistan. It can be made with different types of meat, like lamb or beef. Back when the family lived in Ferganau, Uzbekistan, they had a grill outside their house in the courtyard. And because we lived in Flushing, in an apartment, um... You know, we couldn't have, we didn't have shishlik for a really long time. And I remember how, you know, we would say like, oh, maybe we could get a grill, which is called mangal, and make uh, shishlik on the fire escape. For the record, they did not grill on the fire escape. That would have been a major fire hazard. But you get it. When you're homesick for a place that you can't return to, you look for ways to bring it closer to you. For Yulia, it was the familiar flavors of shishlik that brought her close to home. When we would go on a beach trip or a barbecue in the park, we would make Mm. shishlik then. And it was so good because the smell alone is like, reminds you of Uzbekistan. Back in Colorado, Victor announces that we're having shishlik for dinner tonight. Now that Victor and Galena live here in Colorado in a house with a backyard, they absolutely do have a mangal. Shishlik is Victor's specialty in this household, and he's eager to show me how he prepares the meat. He uses a couple of different spices. Cumin, grounded, and uh, coriander seeds, also ground. And uh, salt and onion. He grates the onion into small pieces straight onto the meat, then pours a bottle of sparkling water, which helps soften the meat. Then we wait, patiently, for two hours for the marinade to do its magic. Back in Uzbekistan, Victor and Galina were used to having big gatherings over at their house with family and friends. Sometimes, when everyone showed up, there might be 40 people. 
they would basically have a massive barbecue party. I can tell that they missed this. Grilling the meat isn't just an opportunity to reminisce about the old times, though. It's also about introducing the flavors of home to new members of the family, like to the partners of their three daughters. Tonight, Yulia's cousin Vitaly and his wife are over for dinner. The grill is ready, the sun has just set. Sparks jump out of the wood charcoal grill. Oh, it smells incredible. Mm -hmm. Makes me feel like I'm like out camping. No, yeah, that's exactly. We're like outdoors. It's a little yeah. chilly, but kind of nice. And like in the forest, right? right? Forest close to the lake. That's that's the vibe, yeah. yeah. Fire, meat, guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Right. No routine. <laughs> and some more again, another day. The meat is so juicy, so flavorful. I might have had more meat tonight than I have in a really long time. But of course, we're having it with Murkovja, the carrots. So I'm getting my vegetables in too. When Yulia's family gets together, they often chat well into the night over tea after dinner. They exchange stories they've heard from their parents and grandparents. Memories from their home in Uzbekistan. People they met at the shelter. About the one-bedroom apartment they shared in Flushing, New York for over a decade. I think the reason we can talk so much is because I think it's like we're making up for all the generations that couldn't. You know, my grandparents didn't talk about this. Like my dad was saying, his parents, nobody talked about this stuff because... You didn't have time. You just only could focus on survival. This summer marks 86 years since this population's forced relocation to Central Asia. With the Soviet Union's aggressive assimilationist policies, the diaspora's distinct Korean dialect has mostly been lost over the generations. Even still, Koryasaram food remains loved by many. When Yulia's family came to the United States, they couldn't return to Uzbekistan for a long time. It was only last year that Yulia's parents returned to Uzbekistan for the first time in 20 years to visit their parents' graves. The house that Yulia grew up in suffered fire damage in recent years, and the street that the house is on is now unrecognizable. What remains, then, are the memories. My grandpa was such a big part of our lives. You know, when I was little, I was always like, oh, my grandpa's like my best friend. You know, I just remember collecting like apricots with him. And again, like the apricots were so juicy. Um, You could see how it would start almost like staining the cotton pouch. For Yulia, this memory of a childhood spent outdoors with her grandfather is what she thinks of as home. Like for me, when I think of home, I do think of home in Uzbekistan still. But I think it's the memory of home yeah, yeah, that's yeah. home. Mm-hmm. Like because it's irreplaceable or like it cannot happen again. Exactly, yeah. Like home is that period Nothing. of time. 
A couple of months after our trip to Colorado, I invited Yulia and her boyfriend Nick to the Koryasaram restaurant back in New York, Eddie Fancy Food. It's on a residential street in Brooklyn. The place barely fits two tables. Most people seem to come by to pick up their takeout orders rather than opting to dine in. Having grown up in Flushing and far from pockets of Koryasaram communities that exist in Brooklyn, Yulia's never been to a restaurant like this other than her own family deli, which the family closed when Galena and Victor moved to Colorado. Ella, who greets us, doesn't own this restaurant, but is here most Sundays and single-handedly commands the kitchen and the hall. By this point, I've become somewhat of a regular here. Ella is also from Uzbekistan and speaks Russian as her first language, but also knows a dialect of Korean she learned from her grandmother, who herself ended up in Uzbekistan by that infamous train journey from the Russian Far East. Ella and I speak in a mixture of English and Korean, but she and Yulia launch straight into exchanging greetings in Russian. You want some sauce? Yeah. Pagodia. Markovcha. Uh-huh. I want everything. I know. So you guys want to get markovcha? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. We get some markovcha and pigoji for the table. I order some kuksi, Nick gets manti, and Yulia orders lagman, which is a Uyghur dish popular in Uzbekistan. It's hand-pulled noodles and beef broth. Oh, wow. Pigoji. Wow. Spasiba. <laughs> They're beautiful. The pigojis are massive. They're steaming hot and stuffed with a generous amount of cabbage and meat. Each of our orders come out and the three of us dive straight in. It's also interesting for me to um, try other people's cooking in the restaurant because I don't really have any references other than like the difference between my mom's and my aunt's. You know what I mean? I've been craving kuksi since Colorado, and it totally hits the spot. In their home cooking, Yulia and Nick have started incorporating more and more koryasaram dishes lately. They tell me that they've made kuksi several times this year. When I ask how the food year compares to her mom's, Yulia says they're pretty close to a taste she's known her whole life. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this felt very familiar and, like, in the same vicinity of what I think those dishes typically taste like. So nothing was, like, super different, you know. Um, I think it was really cool to see the menu because there were a lot more dishes than I expected to. But naturally, Yulia can't help but compare the flavors to her mom Galina's cooking. The... Markovcha, for example, I was thinking like, oh, like, I think my parents use more vinegar (laughs) or like use vinegar a lot more liberally. I don't know. My mouth like tightens thinking about the vinegar. Um, The lagman's really delicious. It's just so flavorful. Yeah, the picotes are always so good. I loved how big they were also. And then the crucial question of the day. Would you come back here? Yeah, I'd definitely come back here. As much as the meal was lovely and the flavors familiar, if I expected Yulia to find a home away from home here, I don't think that was quite the sentiment. It's hard for me to think about flavors of home without thinking about just my mom directly. 
my mom and my dad. And again, I think it's because of our family's story and experience where it was kind of isolating in a way. So when I think about the idea of like our quote people's cuisine, it really just ends up being like my family's, um, which is very special in its own way and like unique. That makes sense. There's something elusive about craving a taste of home when home is a relative concept. When I started seeking out Korean food in my new city that launched me into this whole journey, it wasn't a particular place I missed. I think it was more the sense of familiarity and comfort that I was after. And in a sense, I found it both in the Morkovcha at Eddie's and the shishlik in Galena's kitchen. In Yulia's case, the taste of home include both the charred flavors of shishlik from her childhood in Uzbekistan and the kodesaram dishes her mother Galena made at home in the U.S. A longing for home is lots of different things. A desire to connect with one's family or heritage, missing a faraway place that remains a special place in your heart, a search for comforts and familiarity. And sometimes, the next best thing is to reach for the flavors that bring you closer to that home, wherever that's from. Thanks to Sarah Bake for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Lindsay Palavoy, and I'm the TV and podcast intern. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Poynton, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of host production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins. Special thanks to Yulia Kim and her entire family for sharing their food and their stories. Thanks also to the Association of Independence and Radio for connecting reporters like Sarah with us. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, The Mango Board and Plugra Premium Butter. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.